Daniel chapter 7, and let's pray together. Father, we pray as we open Your Word, as we always do, we pray that You speak through Your Word, speak to our hearts, give us light, give us understanding, so that we can live, we can live to Your glory in this fallen world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Daniel chapter 7. Let me say a couple of things before we dig into Daniel 7. One of the things I want to say, and, and, and just by way of reminder, because we've talked about this a great deal, and that is that history, when you look at history, I love history, teach history, I love it. But when you look at history, it's not just a collection of isolated people, events that have no connection. Some people look at history that way. Some people, you know, they, I don't like history. I don't like the dates. I don't like the people and so forth. Uh, you know, study people and dates. It's just, you know, their, their mind just doesn't function that way. But I love it. And what I love to see is the connection because it's not just isolated events with people and so forth. There's a connection. There are ideas, there are worldviews at play. Nothing happens in a vacuum. So, history is not cyclical. It's not spinning around and nobody knows where it's going and it's just fate and luck of the draw and those kinds of things. No purpose, no design, no direction. That's not it at all. In the Christian worldview, we look at history and we understand there was a beginning and there's an end. There was a definite beginning And there will be a definite end. And there's a lot of stuff that happens in between, right? So in the Christian worldview, we view history as linear. It is progressing to something. It is moving in a particular direction. There is purpose. There is design behind it. And it's building. It's building. It's going somewhere. God rules over all of history. And we understand that. As we open the Bible, we read the Bible, and from again, from a Christian worldview, God rules over all of history from beginning to end for all eternity. And we understand that one in the beginning, we also understand at the end, history will end with a great judgment. God's going to sit and judge. And we see this in a number of places. All of the discourse, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is, is pretty clear there, beginning in about verse 31, about this judgment that is to come. Another thing that we understand from the Christian worldview about history is that Christ's kingdom, His kingdom, rules over all the other kingdoms. His kingdom rules over all. In John 18, Jesus said of His kingdom, My kingdom is not of this world. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's not of this world. We also see in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 14, He is Lord of Lords. Christ is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. In other words, He's set up and pictured as the one who, His kingdom rules over all other kingdoms. The other thing, too, and and these three, I think, have particular significance to Daniel 7. The last one is this, 
And that is that as the saints, the believers, those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, who love Him, who have come to Him, who have turned from their sins and put their faith and trust in Him, we're sometimes called saints, believers will rule and reign with Christ. We will rule and reign with Him. Now that's something we don't touch on a whole lot. Daniel's going to touch on it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, If we endure, Paul says, we will reign with Him. Not just survive. Not just make it through by the skin of our teeth. We will reign. We will rule and reign. But, as we start Daniel 7, we need to understand this. Daniel is not giving us a history lesson. He's not giving us a history lesson. He's not giving us a history lesson so that we can graph and chart people and events and figure out times and seasons. That's not his point. Daniel is making a theological statement in chapter 7. Daniel is stating an absolute truth in chapter 7. And it's a truth and it's a theological statement that we need to understand. And it's simply this. It's one really that's at the heart and theme of the whole book. And that is that our God is in control of everything. Our God is sovereign and He is in control of all things. Therefore, as His people, don't panic. Don't get uptight. Don't panic. But rejoice. Rejoice. Why? Because our God reigns. He reigns. Our God is in control of all things. In spite of what current circumstances may look like. Now, this is true individually because He rules and reigns over my heart. I need a sovereign King to rule over my heart. And He does. He does. It's true regardless of circumstances individually. Sickness, death, family issues, work issues, personal issues in dealing with sin, wrestling with our own personal demons. He rules. He reigns even over that. But it's true collectively too as a people because you know sometimes we think of the politics and we think of what's happening in the world and we see world events and we get nervous and so forth culturally what's happening. No, look, God rules and reigns over that. In spite of what the present circumstances may look like, the theological statement of Daniel is our God is in control. And He rules. And He reigns. Now, Daniel 7, before we get into 7, again, I need to say a couple other things about this section. Daniel 7 is the beginning of a new section in Daniel. Daniel 1 through 6 were these nice stories, 
Right? These nice stories that painted a beautiful picture of God. God's wisdom is greater than man's wisdom. God's power is greater than man's power. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is the only one who can deliver. Chapters 1 through 6 gave us this beautiful picture of God. Beautiful picture of God. And now 7, there's a shift that takes place. Because no longer do we have stories. Now all of a sudden, we get into dreams, and we get into visions, and we get into what some writers call apocalyptic literature. Now what in the world is apocalyptic literature? I bet if we would just say, what do you, th- what, what do you know about apocalyptic? Most would probably say, oh, doom and gloom, right? End time scary stuff, right? That's the way we tend to think of apocalyptic literature, and it can be that way. But really, apocalyptic literature... In the Bible is a revelation. It's revealing something that was hidden. Something that wasn't plain. Something that that maybe was obscure. Something that hadn't been seen at all. It's, It's a revelation. John writes the book of Revelation. It is the apocalypse. The apocalypse. What is it? It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And if we don't approach that book that way, then we miss what John's saying. Again, it's not a history lesson. Daniel here is not a history lesson. Daniel is giving us in chapter 7 all the way to the end in chapter 12 in this new section. What this is, is a revelation of God. He's pulling back the curtain. And in chapter 7, he's going to give us a quick panoramic view of history. And front and center is God. It's God. So apocalyptic literature, we have to be careful of fanciful interpretations. We have to be careful of pressing images too far and finding black helicopters everywhere and finding in this one little number and this one little thing and this little thing is this and this and then drive us crazy. We also can't look at Daniel or even the book of Revelation for that matter. We can't have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other and go, ah, see, Daniel, there it is. There he is. No, we can't do that. That's not why God gives us apocalyptic literature. He gives it to us so that we can know Him. And when we know Him, all that other stuff doesn't matter. Right? All that other stuff doesn't matter. So don't panic. Don't get up tight here. God's still in control. Yeah, it can be dark. It can be scary. It can be... Circumstances can look bleak, but yet here comes God. Now, we're going to look at Daniel 7 in in three parts. And the way that I want to do this in these three parts, the first part that I want to look at is, is just simply, there's a method of studying the Bible called the inductive Bible study method. I think this is the best approach if you want to study the Scriptures. This is a side note here. And it's this. The first thing you have to do is observe what's being said. You have to observe what is being said. And then the next step is that you interpret. You try to add meaning. So what does it say? What does it mean? And then the final step is application. Then what do I do with this? How do I live it? So we're going to take Daniel 7 the same way. The first thing we're going to do is just observe what it says. Because if we miss that, then 
We can miss a whole bunch here. And then we're going to try to add meaning. And then we're going to apply it. In fact, that's the flow of the chapter. This is exactly what Daniel does. He says, here's my dream. This is what it was. And then later he goes, man, I need help understanding this. And he finds somebody and says, can you interpret this? And so he gets an interpretation. And all through this is the application. So what does it actually say? This is the first thing, the observation. There is a connection with chapter 7 and chapter 2. The connection is that chapter 2, there's this vision. Chapter 7, there's a vision. And the visions contain similar, the content of the visions are similar. Not only is chapter 2 and chapter 7 connected that way, but chapter 2 is the first Aramaic chapter. Chapter 7 is the last Aramaic chapter in the book of Daniel. So they're connected that way. So this one section ends with a vision and it, as it began with this vision that Daniel interpreted. So what's it saying? What's it saying? Look at verse 1. The first thing that we see is this universal chaos. There's going to be a contrast between this first scene and quickly shifting to the second scene. And here's the first scene. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now we've already seen Belshazzar. We've seen him earlier. Okay, he was the last king of Babylon when the Persians, when Cyrus took over and defeated the Babylonians. Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon. We've dealt with that history a little bit there. So in the first year, we're going back from chapter 6, we're going back probably 14, 15 years. Back to Belshazzar's reign. And it's in the first year that he's king of Babylon, Daniel says, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. And then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. He's just simply stating, this is what I saw. This is what I saw. Verse 2, Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they, and they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little horn, coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now that's the first part of his vision. 
Does that sound strange? You ever had a dream like that? You ever had a vision like that? If you did, you probably didn't tell anybody, did you? Probably thinking, my gosh, what's going on in my head? Daniel has this vision. I don't know the way it starts. Is he asleep? I, I, I don't know. It seems like maybe, maybe he wasn't asleep. It's like he was trying to sleep and this vision comes. And he sees the four winds. Are the four winds north, south, east, west? In other words, they're coming from all over. Is that the point of the, fourth wind, uh, the four winds? It's interesting in Ezekiel, when Ezekiel... He's talking about the valley of dry bones. And uh, he talks about the four winds coming. And the breath of God raising up. The Holy Spirit there raising up those dry bones and giving them life. The sea. The four winds are stirring up the sea. Now you have to understand in ancient Near Eastern thought, sea was chaos. Sea was chaotic. You can understand why. I mean, if you're out on the sea, you can't really see, and it's kind of scary. If you're on land, you feel a little more secure, right? If you're out in the middle of the ocean on a boat, you don't feel as secure, and you're not quite sure what's down there. So the sea represented chaos. These four winds stirring up the sea, creating this chaos. And out of this chaos... Here come four beasts. Now remember, all we're doing right now is observing what he said, what he saw, what, it, what the text says. We'll get to interpretation in just a second because it's interpreted for us in Daniel 7. So this is what he sees. Now, there is another vision that happens here. There's, and, and, and two, let me point out too, that someone other than the beast are stirring up the seas. You observe that? Something other than the beast are stirring up the sea, creating the chaos in which they emerged. Someone else is doing that. And the sea again representing chaos. These four great beasts come out of that. Then here's another one. Now the scene quickly shifts to... So, so there it is, the first one. This scene of chaos, universal chaos, and the reason for that, as we get to the interpretation, you'll see why. But then it shifts very quickly to another scene. And here we go to a throne room. Totally different scene. One from chaos to one to calm and ultimate control. And here it is in verse 9. I watched till the thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days. This is the only place in the Bible, this chapter is the only place where this name is used of God. This is God. Thrones. Throne room. Here He comes, the Ancient of Days. And He was seated. He was seated. Calm. Controlled. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. This, this reminds us of Ezekiel's vision, when Ezekiel sees these, these figures and these wheels, these burning wheels and so forth. 
A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, and ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated, and books were opened. Whatever this is, this is a throne room, and judgment's about to happen. And there's no panic, there's no chaos, there's no rebellion. There is one in control. And he sits on that throne. I watched and then became, and, and, and I watched uh, then because the sound of the pompous words which the little horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So apparently, this chaos is allowed to go on. And then all of a sudden, verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him, Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. There it is. There's the vision. We just simply observe what what it's saying. Universal chaos Sea being stirred, four beasts coming out, and they were grotesque. They were bizarre. And as he's seeing this, he sees a throne room, and the Ancient of Days seated, books being opened, with an untold number of people there. And then all of a sudden, there's one like the Son of Man. This also reminds us of Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. That great scene there where John gives us a glimpse into the very throne of God. And who is it that steps forth? Who is able to take the seal, the title deed of the earth? It's the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world that steps forward and takes the title deed of the earth and then begins to loose the seals. has the same feel here, doesn't it? Man, what a vision! What a dream! Daniel was shaken by it. Daniel was shaken by it. I think you would be too. I know I would be. I know I would be. Longman, one one commentator said this. He said, Daniel looked into the abyss... Of human chaos. And then looked into the very throne room of God. And was shaken to his core. Okay, so what does it mean? Right? What does all this mean? I mean, that's great. We read through it. Yeah, great. Wonderful. We see it. We observe what it's saying. What does all this mean? Well, verse 15. 
I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. These things bothered me. I came near to one of those who stood by. Was this an angel? Maybe. There's someone standing by and asked him the truth of all this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These, those great beasts, which are the four kings, which arise out of, the, out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. That's, that's a crucial statement. And, and Daniel, as this interpreter tells Daniel, these four beasts are four kings. Now, we've seen them before. In chapter 2, that great statue that, Neb- that, that Nebuchadnezzar had that dream, it was this great statue, Daniel's called in to interpret the dream. And Daniel gives the interpretation of the dream. And the four kings, the four kingdoms, I think, are the same kingdoms in chapter 2. The first one is Babylon. It's Nebuchadnezzar. And when you read the description of that kingdom, and you look and you see the description, this first beast that comes up, a lion and eagle's wings till its wings were plucked off. It was lifted up the earth, off, uh, from the earth, made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. This, is, this apparently is Nebuchadnezzar's fall and Nebuchadnezzar's restoration. You remember how God humbled him? The second one is the same in Daniel chapter 2. So the first beast is Babylon. The second one is Medo-Persia. It's the Persians. It's the Persians. The third beast, this swift leopard with four wings of a bird, it's Greece. It's Alexander the Great. The swiftness with which he conquered what was the known world then. The fourth beast? Rome. It's the Roman Empire. Now what's interesting, and remember as we observed this, and we were just looking at what does it say? What does the text actually say? The fourth beast was different, not like the other ones. The first three were some sort of perversion between human and animals, some perverted idea about animals and grotesque and bizarre picture of an animal. Not the fourth one. The other thing to notice as we observe this is that all three, the first three, were controlled by someone else. They were picked up. They were given. They were told. They were controlled by someone else. The fourth beast seems to have its own independence. What about the little horn? What about this fourth beast, these these ten horns and the little horn? Well, as we continue reading as the interpreter interprets here, these great beasts, which are four kings, which arise out of the earth, The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom to possess the kingdom forever and forever. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth and iron, its nails of bronze, which devoured 
broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And the ten horns that were on its head, the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth, which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. And thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. Ten horns, or ten kings, which shall arise from this kingdom. Another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. And he shall speak pompous words against the Most High shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and laws, then the saints shall be given into His hand for a time and times and half time. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away His dominion, and consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. All dominion, all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the ancient, or this is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. What's the interpretation of this, these four kingdoms? Babylon, the Persians, Greece, Rome. Rome appears to be different. Ten kings, apparently. And out of the midst of these ten comes this little horn. Who is the little horn? Well, when we look at the rest of Scripture, the little horn appears to be the Antichrist. The Antichrist. You remember going through 2 Thessalonians and Paul, this was the first mention of the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians, the man of lawlessness. It's the first mention of the Antichrist. John mentions the Antichrist. In fact, John says, you know, there's one coming. And John says, in fact, there are many there now. They're already at work. There are many Antichrists at work. We get to Revelation and we see this figure this little horn in Daniel 7, and you look at Revelation chapter 13, and you see some of the same similarities there. This great sea, this great beast coming out of this sea, which is clearly in Revelation 13, there's the Antichrist. What does Daniel seem to give in this panoramic view of history? God's in control of it. History's moving in a certain direction. He's in control of it. None of this stuff is happening outside of his control or is not catching him by surprise. And towards the end, towards the end, things are not going to be pretty. Things are not going to be pretty. You notice in, in the vision... This little horn makes war with the saints. He's able to prevail over them for a time. 
But then the Ancient of Days. Then comes the judgment. He's able to prevail over them for a time. But the ultimate victory, the ultimate victory resides in Christ. Resides with the Ancient of Days. He's defeated. He's judged. We see this again played out in the book of Revelation. Once the application of this, because it's one thing to see what, what's it saying and then try to wrestle with what's it, what does it mean. And there, there's so much more that could be said about the interpretation of this and the visions and so forth. But I think the big overall picture, the thrust of the passage and what Daniel's saying, the theological statement that Daniel's making, is not about just figuring out times and people and seasons and that. It, the, the big theological statement that Daniel's making, the truth that he's stating, is that God is in control of all of this. Who was it stirring up the sea? It had to have been God. These beasts come out of it. Who is it that's, that's doing and controlling? The, it had to have been God. It had to have been the Ancient of Days. Who is it that's sitting and judging and will judge all of this? It is the Ancient of Days. It is God. So God rules over all of history. He is the Creator. And in His providence, Christ upholds all things. Let me read to you from Colossians. Go to the New Testament, the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have preeminence. Christ upholds everything. There is nothing that happens outside of His providence. There is nothing that happens. Not even the raising up of these four beasts. Not even the raising up of the Antichrist. There is nothing that happens outside of His rule, outside of His control, outside of His reign. His kingdom rules over all. This is what Philippians Paul says this about Christ in the book of Philippians. Listen to this, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and, be, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth, of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He is Lord. He rules over all. 
Revelation chapter 22. This is what John says in Revelation chapter 22. Verse 1, And He showed me a pure river of, of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street, and on either side of the, the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. Thousands upon thousands. Remember Daniel's vision when he saw the throne? His servants shall serve Him, They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. Who's reigning? We are in Christ, we win. We win. What's the theological statement Daniel's making in Daniel chapter 7? And it's going to be one that runs through all of these chapters to the end of the book from this point on. The theological statement that he's making. Is God is in control and He's sovereign. He's sovereign. And this all starts, an understanding of this all starts with an understanding of the one like the Son of Man. What did this sovereign God do in history? I'll tell you what this sovereign God did in history. Not only did He create everything that exists, and in His providence He's upholding it, and so it's going and running along, as we said earlier, linear. It's going according to His plan. But in the fall, and when sin entered the picture, and sin enters into His creation, and we were plunged into sin because of our own rebellion, not because of Him, but because of our own rebellion. What did this sovereign God do? He provided salvation. And then He sent His Son, the one like the Son of Man, which was Jesus' favorite term for Himself, Son of Man. He sent Him into this world. He shed His blood on a cross. He died on a cross, not for His sins, but for ours. He was buried, He was raised the third day. He ascended back into heaven. He is coming back, which ties into this. And He simply says, come unto Me. Come. Come to Me. Come to Me. Your sins will be forgiven. You'll find purpose. You'll find direction. 
won't be easy all the time. But He'll save you. He will save you. And one day, we will rule and reign with Him. I think it's Watts, the Watts hymn, when I can read my title clear. We've sung that before about going to heaven. And there's a line in that that I love, when I can read my title clear. And when I die and am going to heaven, then I think the line goes something like, I can smile at this sinful world. I can smile at it knowing... I'm out of it and I'm going to heaven and I'm going to be with my Savior. It's a loose paraphrase of the line, but we move on. We're with our Savior. I don't know how it's going to unfold. I don't. And if you were hoping for Daniel 7 to get some inside information, I don't have it. (laughs) I don't have it. I just know that's the big picture. God's in control. Trust Him. Dare to be a Daniel? No, dare to trust God in spite of the circumstances. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your Word. There's so much of this that we we can't begin to understand fully. But I pray that You help us focus here on, on the big picture. and see Christ. We ask this in His name. Amen.